This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. So hello everyone um, and welcome to this podcast from Research in Practice. Um, I'm delighted to welcome today um, Dr. Kristen Asmussen, who is Head of What Works Child Development at the Early Intervention Foundation and is also lead author of a recent EIF report um, entitled Adverse Childhood Experiences, What We Know, What We Don't Know and What Should Happen Next. In this podcast, we'll be taking a look at ACEs and uh, with Kirsten's expertise, I hope deepening our understanding of what we do and what we don't know about ACEs and the implications for public health and social care. Um, So Kirsten, I know amongst our partners at Research and Practice, ACEs has become a quite a hot topic. Um, lots of people asking questions about it and trying to understand what the implications are for their own um, organisations and practice. Um, but maybe we could start by just thinking about from your side at the Early Intervention Foundation, what prompted you um, to um, look into ACEs further and, and what prompted you to, to write this report? Well, um, as the title of our um organization suggests we are about early intervention and that means uh, stopping things from getting worse um, at any point um, in uh, a child's life. Uh, So it might mean preventing things and it also might mean treating things. Uh, It is quite encompassing and the concept of adverse childhood experiences has been around for oh about 20 or so years now. And when we were set up in uh, 2013, it was one of the reasons why we were set up. It was part of the business case that these things existed um, and that they were potentially preventable and treatable. And so that was one of the things that we were supposed to be seen to be doing. However, um, in uh, the first years of uh, being set up, we were looking at a variety of different activities that could improve children's uh, lives, including supporting the home learning environment, uh, supporting supporting their social emotional development, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we, we had thought about ACEs, but not in the depths that we had hoped. And at the end of uh, 2017, uh, the UK uh, Science and Technology Committee uh, announced that there was going to be a uh, investigation or hearing into adverse childhood experiences and the role that early intervention could play in preventing and treating them. So all of a sudden we found ourselves saying, well, we need to have um, some something sensible to say about this. I mean, we had some rough idea, but we, we needed to put together our thoughts. And so we did, we put together um, a, a testimony and we, we went and spoke and such, but we felt, you know, that it wasn't as deep as we would have liked it to be, that we needed an organizational position on it. We understood that the evidence in this area is actually quite um, controversial in some respects, Mm -hmm. but even more so some of the uh, practices that have followed. So there's not a straight, clear forward, um, evidence-based answer, at least not that we were aware of at the time. So we decided that we were going to do a very comprehensive narrative literature review in all aspects of the ACEs narrative, uh, starting off with the, uh, you know, the, the framework that was put together in the original um, ACEs study, uh, 
-hmm. And then also in terms of, for example, the evidence underpinning the brain science of ACEs, and then also what evidence existed um, underneath some ACE-related uh, practices, in particular screening, population screening for ACEs, and also uh, trauma-informed care. So we did this really partly to improve our own knowledge of ACEs. And also, as one of our um, advisory group members um, suggested, that we wanted to help our audiences become better consumers of the ACEs evidence. And that meant uh, breathe a little bit of healthy skepticism into what was out there, but not throw the baby out with the bathwater at the same time. So I hope we did achieve that. Right, because the last few years there's been this kind of surge in, in popularity of the, the, the ACE um, narrative in, in the UK. Um, but with that, arguably has have arisen some misconceptions and um, perhaps misapplications of the ACEs framework. This report, um, it feels like, is really doing a lot to address what the evidence can and can't tell us. Um, so perhaps we could move on to um, thinking about um, what, it, what it can and can't tell us. So, but I mean, could you actually tell us a little bit more about what we, what we are talking about when we're talking about adverse childhood experiences? Um, to begin with, I, I guess our listeners will have a, a good idea, um, many of them already, but perhaps you have a, a clear definition that could um, enlighten the rest of us. Well, there's uh, the traditional uh, definition that was, uh, well, I, I don't even think they thought of it as a de definition at, this, at the time, but uh, the original ACE study, which dates back to 1998, uh, or was published then actually, it was conducted before them, looked at 10 childhood adversities um, and considered how they predicted a variety of negative ad adult outcomes from uh, uh, health records and also uh, adults' recollections. Um, uh, in terms of the poor outcomes, they were outcomes that were ranged from diabetes to cancer to stroke um, and heart disease and a variety of very serious uh, mental health issues. Um, including chronic substance misuse, uh, depression, and suicidality. Um, and these 10 childhood adversities included six forms of abuse and neglect. So these were actually uh, the, the um, very traditional categories and the questions that they used to ask them uh, came from the conflict tactics scale, which is commonly used to uh, measure the prevalence of abuse and neglect or um, abusive ways of resolving conflict. So the questions were about, you know, had you ever been hit before? Had you ever seen a parent hit another parent? Um, have you been, uh, they didn't ask children if they were neglected per se, but you know, have you been hungry for long periods of time? But all the, um, the, the six categories are those um, that, would be punishable in, in many countries by law. Um, so we're not talking about um, a casual witnessing of people getting cross with each other. We're talking about a parent hitting another one or a parent um, being incarcerated or, uh, but interestingly, parental separation was on that list. And so, so I, I should backtrack. So there were six forms of abuse and neglect and then four forms of family dysfunction. And that includes parental separation, uh, 
parental substance misuse, chronic substance misuse, uh, parental mental illness, and a, a parent who's gone to prison. And so they decided to look at, uh, I, the original study was to see, you know, do, did any of these things uh, predict poor adult outcomes? And uh, we know already in the child protection literature that they do, knew, that's been known for a while. But I think that um, what was interesting about this study was that they added these additional ones and they found, or they felt that they found that there was this cutoff of four that seemed to predict uh, them in particular. And that um, in some of these, in some instances, the, the risk, uh, the relative risk became quite dramatic. Uh, so for example, if you had four or more ACEs, you were at a 10 or more fold risk of suicidality or um, intravenous drug use. Uh, so uh, the, the, the title of that report then was something along the lines of adverse childhood experiences may be the root cause of many uh, life-threatening diseases, with the idea here that they were actually causal. Mm. Even though if you read the study quite carefully, they don't go quite as far as saying that they said they found an association between the existence of ACEs and adults' memories of ACEs and then, then poor adult outcomes later on. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was the unique, the unique um, contribution of, of, of this study, that, that clear link between the number of those adverse experiences as a child and risk of, of those poor adult outcomes. Right. And do we, do we know about how common ACEs are in the population? That's a good question. Uh, in reality, no, we don't. <laughs> you know, we know that uh, that uh, somewhere around two percent of children are on the child protection register, uh, or are known to local authorities where there's uh, some kind of concern. Mm -hmm. um, but we also know we've known historically. We always know that this is really the tip of the iceberg. So when you look at these uh, retrospective surveys with adults, uh, the ACE is one of the number. Uh, there was actually a very good prevalence study conducted by the NSPCC about uh, 10 years ago now. Uh, you start to see that the rates uh, for lifetime prevalence are, are much higher, uh, anywhere between um, 10 to 20%, depending on the ACE, certainly with parental separation, we're looking at around 50%. Um, but of course, four or more, then that 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 is uh, more rare, and so we're looking again. Sometimes below ten percent of the population. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what's remarkable is that it that the ACEs studies that have been conducted to date uh, with adults, again, and I should emphasize this is with retrospective recall, and we're looking at lifetime prevalence, is showing anywhere between um, oh. 10 to 20% depending on the ACEs and then somewhere around 10% for four or more. And so given that's what we, what we know and that's what your report was really um, able to, um, you know, by digging, drilling down into the evidence um, and cover, you know, and pinpoint that, that which we, which we know. Um, but your report also looks at what we don't know. So uh, some of the points that you've, you've talked about just now about, you know, so identifying what those 10 um, 
ACEs, original ACEs, uh, were from the original um, Filetti study. Um, and the, um, that association between um, uh, increased uh, adverse childhood experiences and poor adult outcomes might make one feel that this is kind of um, deterministic. You know, if, if you've um, experienced a lot of adversity in childhood, it's kind of inevitable that you're going to have, have, have those poor outcomes. But um, can you tell us, can you kind of rein us in a bit and, and um, tell us what, what it is that we, we don't know and what, what should we be cautious about when interpreting uh, or extrapolating from, from um, those associations? Well, I think one way to think about it is just what do we mean by risk and what, does, what is the absolute risk of when there is an increased relative risk and how can we interpret um, findings about risk? And I think that this is where the, it's, there wasn't a flaw with the Filetti study. Um, they, it did what it did. I think it's the interpretation of what it did that, that is maybe misleading now in terms of this deterministic message because many things that people do create risks in their lives. Uh, smoking is a very common one. And yet we all probably have a relative who smoked their entire life and they're still living to be in their 80s. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it's not, relative risk is not always a very good predictor of things on the individual level. And the differences in relative risk that Filetti and colleagues found with very rare things that um, that doubling or whatever risk that it was can be somewhat accurate when, from a population standpoint when you're looking at your population statistics. Mm -hmm. But when you start looking at relative risk and you're talking about something very common, like cancer, mm -hmm. um, which I think is an interesting point that was made in this recent article that was published by in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, you, you can say, well, it might have doubled that risk, but it's not actually a very good metric because a variety of different things can. And because cancer is so common, it's predicted by very many things. So even though the statistics are right, they're not particularly deterministic. And just to give another example, so it, one of the things the ACE study and subsequent studies have done is, is they've noticed that uh, four or more ACEs uh, increase the risk of uh, intravenous drug use, opioid uh, drug use by at least 10. Mm. But in the original ACE study, I mean, in the, the population generally, it is the, the prevalence rate is 0.01%. So it increased it in the, the, the sample of children who had four, or sample of adult, adults who had four or more ACEs, it increased it to 1%. But that still means that 99% of the people in that sample did not go on to use intravenous drugs. So I think we need to be very clear about what these deterministic risks mean. That, that you should maybe, uh, just like if you had other health risks that were very rare and they're known, for example, in a variety of genetic problems, we do test for them when a mother is pregnant, um, even though it's very rare because we can with some accuracy. But we also know that, that if, even if there might be a hereditary risk for something, it doesn't mean that the child is going to be um, disabled or, or whatever that you're testing for. Um, and so I think that that needs to be borne in mind. And unfortunately, you know, when you look at some of the hubs, the ACE hubs that are out there, you get the message that a 
individual who's had a, a very unfortunate childhood is going to go on and repeat that and, and die an early death. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, when you look at the population statistics, you will see an increased risk, but certainly not that level of determinism. And by and large, for example, children who have been abused um, do not go on to become abusers in their adulthood. And I think that that's something that people should not forget. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really important. Um, yeah, really important to to keep in mind and not not to um, have that message overshadowed by what was part of you know population studies and understanding um, increased risk. Um, but um, yeah, that, that's really clear. Thank you. What about in, in terms of the the actual ACE categories? Going through that that list of the, the ten ACE categories, um, you know, it's notable that. Um, all of the um, categories, um, so the, the forms of child abuse and neglect, and then the, the, the forms of um, family dysfunction that you mentioned, well, they're all to do with the family, aren't they? They're all to do with those um, kind of intimate um, um, experiences in, in, in relationship within, within a family. Um, what about other factors? Are they taken into account within um, research around um, adverse childhood experiences, so um, systemic um, and structural issues? Well, it, the studies are becoming more sophisticated in doing that, but the original ACE study did consider people's education. Uh, they, they controlled for that in the analysis. So that's one way of kind of taking it into account, but they didn't really explain it. But just before going into that, it, it's worth noting that the ACE categories are highly correlated with each other. So for a child, for example, who experiences physical abuse is much more likely to be psychologically abused as well. And so you really find these clusters of behavior. And so the question is, are you really measuring 10 different things mm-hmm. or are you measuring one big thing very chronically, for example? Now, I don't want to go into details about polyvictimization, how this overlaps with those findings and that there is probably something that's this is picked up here that the variety um, of the different categories is more traumatic and detrimental than just one category. But we know, in fact, that that doesn't happen very often either. So, you know, it's not, it's very, it would be very rare for a child to be just physically abused and not be psychologically abused as well. So that's, so they're not clean, separate categories to begin with. Mm-hmm. On top of that, we know that those categories are highly correlated with other adversities, right. like poverty, um, like crowded housing, like uh, racial discrimination, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, being a uh, higher likelihood of being victimized outside of the home. And so there's nothing really sacred about those 10 in predicting poor outcomes. And when you're, when you're thinking about preventing something, you want to know what it is that you need to prevent so you can do it, you know, so you can do it with some precision. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the evidence is strong enough to say that um, some of the poor outcomes are correlated with, with the ACEs versus other things that coexist with ACEs, such as poverty. Um, the science doesn't appear to be there yet, but... For example, many of these um, physical outcomes that were associated with ACEs are probably better predicted by some of the uh, 
adversities that coexist with them, such as poverty, such as food insecurity, for example, such as poor birth outcomes. Um, and in fact, we looked at studies, they're in the appendix of the report, but we looked at studies that were showing um, increases in, in risk um, that were comparable um, to those uh, by four of them or ACEs with just one of these other categories. So for example, uh, poor birth outcome is actually a higher uh, risk of poor adult outcomes than any of the you know, four mores categories. Mm -hmm. And yet that coexists with these other things too. So they didn't pull that apart completely. And this and I and I feel silly saying these things though, because when you when you make that observation, it's like, well, should we not worry about ACEs? Of course we should. They're 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 terrible things that happen to children. Um, and they should be prevented. Many of them are against the law. That that shouldn't be the point. But when we're starting to talk about causal relationships and using that as to explain certain uh, uh, certain findings, I think that that's where where the where the interpretation becomes a little bit trickier. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the the original study uh, was conducted twenty years ago. Uh, it was a retrospective study, which there are methodological limitations with that as well, because it turns out that adult memories are not particularly good, uh, particularly when you're talking about the number of ACEs to get that level of precision in there. Um, so a better way of looking at this is with prospective uh, cohort studies that track a, a large population of individuals at regular intervals, starting at the child's uh, birth and then carrying on through adulthood. And in those studies, we see a very strong and consistent relationship between ACEs and poor mental health outcomes. But it is much weaker, if non-existent, for physical health outcomes. So we really don't know about that relationship yet. Uh, and certainly not with the precision that we had thought that we did. Although there is some evidence that, for example, child neglect might be contributing to physical, poor physical adult outcomes. Uh, but so that that's part of what we don't know yet, and we need to find out more about it. Mm. Uh, but right now, I think there are many assumptions that are out there that people will get very ill. Um, they will, they're, they're at much greater risk of having mental health problems. There's no doubt about that. Mm. But in terms of physical health um, pro problems, you know, you see these statistics saying, oh, if you got rid of ACEs, you would cut down uh, heart disease by X amount. I, I don't think we can make those claims yet. I suppose as you've said you know uh, those adverse childhood experiences which you know so that they're focused on the family the family relationship and um you know a, a lot of the categories you know are uh come under you know criminal offenses and obviously they do need our attention but um i suppose what you're saying as well is it, it's it's we need to have a fuller picture um i suppose without also thinking about the wider structural issues that are also associated with poor adult outcomes and which may indeed underpin those family dynamics so they seem to be from what you're saying they're associated so things like poverty and crowded housing and um uh, higher levels of parental stress um that um you know we shouldn't be completely distracted away from also thinking about those those wider underpinning um, issues. No, we shouldn't. In fact, in, again, in the appendix in the report, we review evidence that's looked at uh, uh, studies, by and large, uh, conducted in North America, but where they've actually uh, 
given people, um, they've moved them into completely new neighborhoods, or they've looked at changes in family interactions once uh, parents either received benefits or were put into employment. And you see dramatic reductions in uh, uh, violent interactions with each other. You know, we know that poverty is a, a, a serious and chronic cause of stress and that people when under stress tend that stress spills over. Um, that of course shouldn't say that, that that's the, that if you're poor, for example, that you're going to be abusive to each other, that doesn't mean that either. It's just, again, a risk factor. It also doesn't mean that there are some individuals where poverty isn't an issue and yet they're very poor at resolving conflict and, and do abusive things to each other. So, you know, again, looking for causality in these things is, is maybe, uh, is, it's not as simple. You know, many times these things are multi-determined and we need to recognize that. Uh, it's not one clear answer. So it's not just poverty, mm. but poverty shouldn't be forgotten either. Mm. And I think that that was one of the things that surprised us when we looked at the ACEs study, is that very few of them either controlled for it or they considered the role of uh, the impact of poverty on the likelihood of the ACEs. And the very few um, studies that did actually found that sometimes poverty was a better predictor of some poor adult outcomes than the ACEs themselves. That's really interesting because the, there is a danger of a heavy focus on the individual and um, the, the family nexus um, can kind of... Um, yeah, the kind of over-responsibilized kind of families um, and, and ignore those those other structural elements. So that's yeah, that's helpful to, to bear in mind when thinking about um, ACEs. Just, just to sum up, in, ter in terms of what we don't know is that um, ACEs, the relationship between ACEs and physical adult outcomes is fairly tenuous. I think we can say with increasing confidence, however, that um, ACEs are linked to poor um, uh, mental health outcomes. And they're also, like this was originally observed in the, the Fleddy study, that um, ACEs are um, associated with a greater likelihood of a variety of health-harming behaviors. Um, that includes uh, harmful drinking, uh, risky sexual behavior, um, smoking, um, overeating. Um, now the question is again, is it the ACEs that's causing that? It, that was the hypothesis in the um, article, or is, do those behaviors happen at a family level um, alongside ACEs? So, for example, you know, if a parent um, drinks heavily, um, and children will learn that behavior from the parent as well. So, it's difficult to understand uh, the relationship. We don't know for sure, but we do know that. Um, ACEs uh, increase the likelihood of these health-harming behaviors. Mm -hmm. But I think this is something that was noteworthy for us, is that we also know that there are a number of things that you can do uh, with children and, you know, particularly young people to prevent them from engaging in these behaviors before they've started them, either, even when they're living in adverse circumstances. So um, we think that those, those are sorts of... Uh, behaviors could be addressed uh, through uh, the use of evidence-based interventions. Mm. Okay, well, let's maybe move on to thinking about kind of the, the implications for, for social care, if, if that's okay. Because um, I know that will be 
um, something at the forefront of many of our, our listeners' minds. You know, what's this mean for them? Um, and so I, I know you mentioned the the recent, I think it was um, March 2020, a paper in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine. Um, and, um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, um, so, you know, in the original Filetti study, the, um, uh, the ACE categories were used to understand the association between adverse experiences and adult outcomes. Others have gone on to take those categories um, and use them to um, use them within screening programs within public health. Um, so coming up with, a, with an ACEs count for individuals coming into um, contact with, with public health. Um, but this paper that you referred to earlier um, in the American Journal, Journal of Preventative Medicine, which was written by some of the authors of the original um, study, um, stated that that in fact using the ACE score in, in that way, um, to quote, isn't suitable for screening individuals and assigning risk for use in decision making about the need for services or treatment. But we do see that routine ACE screening is, is increasingly popular as a, as a frontline response to ACEs. So what can you enlighten us um, around routine ACE screening and what does the evidence uh, related to screening suggest? Well, I think that this, when we embarked on the report that this practice was the most surprising for us because normally uh, the tests that have to take place for population-wide screening to be implemented are quite uh, substantial. So for example, if you think about uh, the Edinburgh postnatal uh, depression scale, it has been tested in, in almost every single country in the world for its sensitivity and specificity. Mm -hmm. And by that we mean is, is it when people fill this thing out or when they, they're asked the, the questions on that scale, um, are they predictive of them having a serious uh, mental health problem or serious issue with depression? Mm -hmm. And then they, they, and they use other measures to verify that as well as, uh, you know, just interviews with people about their experiences and how it's impacting their life. Mm -hmm. So it's been tested over and over and over again. And that whilst the screen, something we wouldn't even call something like the ACE questions, a screener, they were just in a survey. Mm -hmm. They were survey questions and they found a relationship, but they were, it was never developed as a screener or a diagnostic tool. And people never had tested to see if how four or more ACEs predicted outcomes at an individual level. Mm -hmm. um, so as I just illustrated before, for example, uh, four or more ACEs increases the risk of um, intravenous drug use by ten, you know, tenfold. But on the other hand, it's, it's still going to be quite difficult to use that count to predict it on the individual level. Whereas something like uh, the Edinburgh uh, postnatal depression score predicts this at above at 80% or higher, depending on the population. Some, some populations, the screener is, is, is around 90%. And these are the standards that we have for the kinds of measures that we use for um, population screening. So I think for us, it was quite surprising that this counting was taking place without any of this testing having occurred in the past. 
Um, and the, the point that they make in the article, which is also very valid, is that when you're looking at population-wide trends, those counts are good enough. You're, look, you're pre predicting things happening in a population, and you want to know what percentage of your population might be having these problems. Mm -hmm. And that's really important for planning services. That's, that's vital. But it's not something you would use to predict something on the individual level. So it's a bit of a mix-up to use this, this, this um, mm -hmm. very crude instrument to make predictions um, at the individual level. And, so, and the risk there is, is that if you're relying on it, you will identify children needing more help who don't need it at all. Right. And you will miss children who desperately need help because experience of ACEs, even though it may overlap with symptoms of trauma or problems, is not the same. So you could have one ACE, but it could be so traumatic that you could desperately need help. And so, for example, there are many children from who, whose parents have maybe, the only thing that's happened to them is a very difficult family separation. Mm -hmm. divorce. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they, they, they wouldn't have ticked any of the other boxes, but they could still need quite a bit of help. Right, because there's, there's, no, there's no nuance within the questions, is there? It's, yeah. um, it's not about kind of how many times an, 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 a particular ACE category was experienced or even what the example of separation and divorce, I think, is, is a good example what that experience meant to the individual. It's just whether it occurred or, or not, ever. Right. right. So it, 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 obviously there is a correlation between the number of ACEs and the risk of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and, and trauma, quite often people mean things like PTSD, but they, they're looking at and defining it in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, some people actually count um, ACEs or talk about ACEs as trauma, uh, where we know that it's not. That's not to say that, that certainly individuals who've had um, a very difficult childhood with a high level of ACEs probably is at greater risk. I think that that's fair enough to say, but you wouldn't use it as a diagnostic tool. Right. It would be overly reductionist if you did that. Um, but I think the thing that, that bothered us the most when we started doing this research is there was an assumption that, oh, people don't mind asking the questions. And in fact, if you ask them the ACEs question, um, they, they, just being able to talk about it for the first time is kind of a watershed moment and that they will naturally seek help on their own. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's, most of it has not been rigorously evaluated yet. But over the last several years, um, in the last two years, there have been studies looking at the acceptability of this. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about it is that, you know, as most studies, they don't recruit everybody that they should to the study. But in these studies in particular, the, the ones, the individuals that they spoke about, whether or not they, they liked the questions, tended to be the ones who weren't experiencing ACEs. And the most vulnerable did not participate in the study. Uh -huh. And the, there was one study that has been published in the last couple of years that did look at this and found that the, the most vulnerable families uh, were the most uncomfortable answering those questions okay. and were the, the least likely to answer them truthfully. So, you know, if that's the case, um, then it's not going to work at all, is it now? It's, it's going to stigmatize people. It... Um, uh, and I could also imagine situations that if you wanted to get at something out of, out of something, you could you could exaggerate it as well too, and say, well, I've you know I've had 
all this this bad experience in my past and so uh, that that explains it and you know to somehow uh, get off the hook of something so I, I don't think it's a from what we could tell right now uh, it's it's not been studied enough to be used at, at, as, at the population level or even within a practice I mean unless you're going to evaluate it yeah and there are reasons to suspect that it probably shouldn't be used right yeah and, and those what you've just touched on there as well kind of um you've kind of highlighted ethical issues really with with screening in this way so you mentioned um the potential for stigmatizing people mm -hmm. and also pathologizing individuals who who may um for example you know um not feel that their childhood was um has has an impact on them now or may not feel that having experienced particular aces um you know is 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 something that holds them back but learning that that you know they're at increased risk of um all kinds of poor adult outcomes um you know might not be not be, might be really unhelpful and might risk pathologizing them um and and i suppose there is also a an argument that if if there aren't services available for all the people that are identified as having, um, you know, higher ACE scores, then that also has problems in terms of kind of the, the ethics of, of that. Yeah, I mean, it's considered unethical to ask people things if you can't help them with them. And so I think that you need to have uh, a clear services in place to, to address the issues then when they arise. And you know, uh, in the state of California, they, they they've kind of done both of these things. They, they they're using A scores to identify children with problems in a way that uh, uh, the article that you mentioned recommends not to do. Mm -hmm. And actually, a number of other medical bodies are, have come out and made a statement against. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, um, when they uh, do find these children or find or everybody has to fill out their their a score they get a score and then they go on to another uh, diagnostic screen screener okay. so it's a pre-screener in a sense now i'm not sure then how effective it is um but and it's done anonymously so nobody is going to be stigmatized directly they do it not i don't know on an ipad in the office um but then when they go through the full diagnostic process, they are offered uh, probably some of the best interventions that are available right now mm -hmm. in terms of treating symptoms of trauma and preventing things from getting worse. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean that they're foolproof, but that they have invested in some good interventions. So when we wrote our report, we were surprised and uh, raised skepticism about the screening use in the state of California but did praise uh, their use of evidence-based um, interventions to respond to ACEs. Right. Whereas we've seen practices taking place in other, elsewhere where they're, they're, they're not doing anything after screening for them. Um, they're just asking people and saying, oh, well, you're at risk of worse outcomes now, so maybe you know, need to go seek help and you might want to do it here. Um, I think that that's the most that we've seen. Uh, to some in, in some other instances, it's led to activities that are untested, so we don't know if they're evidence based yet. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, and no one's going to argue that you know identifying 
um, children who need um, intervention and services and providing them with the best of those interventions um, isn't isn't a great idea. Um, I suppose it's the the way the way in which that's gone about, and I suppose um, you know that brings us to if screening isn't isn't the right way, what can public health and social care do to prevent and reduce um, ACE related trauma and to um, to address it? Um, and, and what are better ways? Are there better ways of of working with with children and families to identify um, need and um, adverse childhood experiences that do need um, um, intervention and support? Well, I can imagine that any child who's been abused or neglected is going to benefit from some kind of help, and I don't think you need a score to tell them tell you that. I think that, that you know that if they've that if they they're they've undergone abuse, that they should receive help, um, and that it should be appropriate help, it should be, and if it's evidence-based. What, what have we done to identify these things in the absence of an ACE score? Mm. Uh, you know, there are a variety of diagnostic tools out there um, that do have uh, the sensitivity and specificity, uh, although maybe not as much as something like the Edinburgh Postnatal Dis depression score, but there are things out there. Uh, for example, there are a number of trauma inventories, but of course it's not, it wouldn't be necessary to screen everybody in the population for these, these things. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand too, if we did that and we offered pre-treatment, what would we be preventing? Um, unfortunately, we don't have, we don't always have instruments out there that are any better than uh, the practitioner's judgment and the resources that are available um, to the practice to, to help families. Um, but, uh, you know, so what can we do? Um, the other thing we can do is, is we can make sure that preventative interventions are available upstream of um, treatments. You know, so I gave the example before of, uh, you know, having interventions that uh, timed well in children's development that helped them understand uh, the dangers of, of, of using drugs, alcohol, and uh, tobacco, and help them make healthier choices, um, help them develop coping skills for dealing with anxiety, et cetera, and, and frame what happened to them and, and help them, you know, within their schools, seek support so that they can get better support outside of school if they need it. Um, there are a variety of different pathways that we can do to support children who might be highly vulnerable. That one of the things we were worried about is if people are over relying on these scores, which we aren't, we know aren't very good. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that they aren't doing other things that we know actually are, you know, they're not perfect, but they, they are, they do identify children who need help and they do refer them on to the help that they, that, that could be beneficial. So these are, these are the universal um, kind of systems of support, but, and then also selected and targeted um, um, interventions um, and, and um, approaches, which are already already have good evidence bases. Um, um, is that well, the good, better than no evidence. Let's right. put it that way. There, let, let's be clear: these interventions are not a silver bullet. Um, they're 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 not going to cure all children, but you could imagine that if uh, in a well-resourced school, for example, that 
you know, you, you have support for the entire classroom for, to help the children get along better and, and uh, develop good social emotional skills with each other. And when you notice that some children might be struggling with that or through these activities, you find out that some children need more help. You have the resources within your school to then refer the children on to uh, the appropriately uh, trained um, individual. You, probably a psychologist or a social worker who can who then has the training and the supervision to help the children with the issues that they're experiencing yeah so i mean so we're, we're talking about relationship relationship-based practice and and creating that connection with individuals you know and and so if we if we come away from a focus on, on screening how do we identify children young people who are struggling and might be experiencing adversity well through the the relationships and contact and um uh those those kinds of responses um at, at a relationship level it's really the the kind of where where attention and focus it sounds like could be better directed to yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, like I said, there aren't silver bullets here, okay? But I don't think that the score is going to, it doesn't feel, you know, from the research that we did that a score is going to substitute any of that judgment. We know already that even any, any kind of uh, measure of, that looks at the risk, for example, of maltreatment of, of a parent hurting their child is not much better than 50%. Uh, it would be nice if we had we, we could tell right away, but or, I don't know if that would be nice. But it, 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 we can't. We can't. We need to, we need um, to rely on well trained and supported professionals uh, to do that. And these are very tricky situations, so you're not going to get disclosures or understand what's going on with the individual until you spend some time with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that. Uh, that requires a skilled therapist who knows how to develop a, an alliance with the people that they work with and work through some very difficult issues quite often. I mean, I, we, we didn't find any replacements for that, and I don't think you will. So in a nutshell, <laughs> summing up, there are, there's important learning from um, the research that has been done around ACES and understanding um, those associations between um, greater adversity in childhood and risk of poor outcomes um, in adulthood. Um, however, um, the cautions and limitations you've, you've highlighted are really around kind of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the narrow focus on um, the ACE categories um, shouldn't be um, something which, which takes away from also understanding the fuller, the fuller wider um, systemic issues, which um, may also be at play and may in some instances even underpin um, some of the family dynamics um, going on um, and um, cautions around screening the kind of um, problems of, of using ACEs counts at an individual level uh, and we've talked about the, the risk of stigmatizing and, and pathologizing um, individuals um, and um, and I suppose caution around being deterministic um, as well. Um, so yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to add there, Kristen? Because that's that's been really it covers it. Oh, well, I've, I've kept you much longer than I intended. That's brilliant.
Thanks for listening to this Research in Practice podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on Twitter? Tweet us at ResearchIP.